right. So, God is not a great big one of us. Any amens? <laughs> so sometimes we relate to him like he is. Our thoughts of God sometimes are way too human. We can kind of make God in our own image. You know, he made us in his image and we can return the favor. But he's not like us. He's in a class by himself. He's holy and transcendent. And, you know, when it comes to fully comprehending who God is, we are all like three-year-olds trying to understand the internet or quantum physics. You know, we grasp about this much. So God's otherness is actually a really, really good thing for a million reasons. And one of those reasons is that he finishes what he starts. So we, on the other hand, eh, you know, maybe we finish some things, but how often do we start strong and then we peter out? We get excited and then our zeal cools. We start lots of things, but we finish at least fewer things, <laughs> maybe a few things. I mean, how many books have you started and not finished? <laughs> maybe some for good reasons, you know, some you start and you're like, eh. How many exercise programs? How many diets? How many instrument lessons? How many budget plans? Home projects? How many letters have you started to write and not finished and sent? creative projects, classes or courses, or how many friendships have we started but then drifted away from and given up on? We could go on and on. So that may be true of us, that we don't finish well the thing, at least all the things that we start. Maybe it's truer than we care to admit, but it is not true of God. So, we're in this series called The Perseverance of the Savior and His Saints. And last week we looked at John 6 under the title, The Perseverance of the Savior. And we're going to be looking at both the perseverance of the Savior and the perseverance of the saints this morning in Philippians 1 and 2. So, I've mentioned this book, I mentioned it last week, by Dana Ortland. It's called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. Um, great book, highly recommended. I'm going to quote from it, I think, a couple times here. But uh, let me just start off with a quote that captures these thoughts well. It isn't as if Jesus' heart throbbed for his people when he was on earth, but has dissipated now that he is in heaven. It's not that his heart was flowing forth in a burst of mercy that took him all the way to the cross, but has now cooled down, settling back once more into kindly indifference. His heart is as drawn to his people now as ever it was in his incarnate state. Our presence in God's good favor and family will never sputter and die like an engine running out of gas. So that's good news. We've got some good news to, to study and celebrate and be thankful for and be changed by this morning. So Philippians 1 here. So Philippi was, you know, basically what we know now as northern Greece. 
and Paul brought the gospel to them sometime between A.D. 49 and 51. You can look at Acts 16 later and see that, the beginning of that story, the church there in Philippi. At this point when he writes Philippians, he's writing from prison, most likely under house arrest in Rome. And you can see that in Acts 28, 14 to 31. So the time is around A.D. 61 or 62. And so at this point, the church in Philippi is about 10 years old. Okay? There's no long heritage of faith that they can look back on. This is a fledgling church okay, made up of first-generation believers. And Paul is their spiritual father, and he's in prison. So you can imagine how that would shake their faith. So Paul's writing to encourage them, especially to encourage them to rejoice in the Lord. They can even rejoice that he's in prison because he's got prison ministry going on. <laughs> Chapter 1. He's writing to calm their anxiety. Don't be anxious for anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He's also writing them to thank them for their faithful partnership with him in the gospel. They've supported his ministry. So you look at chapter 4 and you see that in the closing verses. But in these opening verses, the ones that Tyler read a few minutes ago, verse 6 is like the center of gravity. Okay, so that's one of the two texts we're going to look at this morning. First, chapter 1, verse 6, and then we're going to look at chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. All right, so point number one, God begins the work. Philippians 1, 6. Paul says to the Philippians, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So he started it, he's going to finish it, taking care of you all the way until Jesus returns and makes everything new. So God began this work. And beginning that work, he wasn't just giving us a little spiritual boost Becoming a Christian, experiencing salvation is a miracle. So you and me, we were dead in our transgressions and sins. Not mostly dead for you Princess Bride fans out there. Like Billy Crystal's, you know, Miracle Max guy in the Princess Bride. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead, okay? We were all dead. So consider Ephesians 2. Mark um, read from this earlier. It's such a fitting passage here. So Ephesians 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. That's what we deserve, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And then down to verse 8, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God begins the work. He makes us alive together with Christ. And he didn't just meet us halfway. It was when we were dead, he made us alive. 
This is not our doing. So salvation is from the Lord from beginning to end. So when Paul and Silas showed up in Philippi, again, you can read this later in Acts 16, they went to a gathering place, place of prayer, and there were many God-fearers at the time that they didn't, hear, they didn't know about Jesus yet, these Gentiles, and they began to preach the gospel. So one woman who was there heard the message preached about Jesus. Her name was Lydia. And you know what the text says? It says the Lord opened her heart to respond to what she heard. And she was baptized. God began that good work in her. She was the beginning of the church in Philippi. So I I know this old pastor from Chicago years who used to take young aspiring pastors to a cemetery and, you know, walk up to a gravestone and there'd be a few guys standing around. He said, okay, pick one of the guys, say, start preaching. What? What are you talking about? Like, start preaching. Preach the gospel. And, you know, it's awkward, and the guy starts to preach the gospel. So is that sermon going to do anything for those bones in the ground? It's obviously an exercise in futility. There's no way that dead body's going to respond. But the whole point was to drive home the fact that we can't change anybody's heart because you're dealing with spiritually dead people. Because of sin, we're like cut flowers. We're separated from the source of life. We've got to be grafted back in for the life-giving, you know, what is it, minerals and (laughs) whatever else, to begin to flow again, okay? So, only God can save. Only God can make alive. Of course, God uses people, uses me and you. He speaks through people to bring others to faith, but without the miracle work of the Spirit of God, nothing will ever happen. You might as well be, you know, preaching at a grave. So, listen, you, if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, if you experience the miracle of the new birth, You were dead in sins. Now you're alive in Christ. It doesn't matter if you live some crazy wild life and God radically converted you or if you grew up in a Christian home and you never really had an openly rebellious phase. If you are trusting Jesus as your Savior, you are a living miracle. Even boring testimonies are radical miracles. In fact, there are no boring testimonies because Ephesians 2 is true for you, which is miraculous and awesome. Or if you arrived at this service or you're watching on the live stream and maybe you knew about Jesus coming into this morning, but you don't know Jesus personally. Like have a living, real relationship with him. You must be born again. You need that miracle work. Spiritual life grafted into the vine, reconciled to God. And God can do that right now in you as you hear the gospel. The Bible says we're all sinners. Do you know you're a sinner? Bible says we need a savior. <laughs> Do you know you need a savior? Jesus is the savior. That's why he came. 
He came to seek and save the lost so you can repent, you can turn from your sin, from trying to run your own life, wanting your own will to be done on earth as it is in your own mind, and you can trust in Jesus. He can save you. But some of you might be wondering, okay, so how do I know that God has begun a good work in me? Now, there's a bunch of helpful passages to help us with that question. One whole book that's helpful, 1 John. Take a look at if that's you know, a burning question in your mind and heart. We're going to actually look at that book in week four. But for this morning, the context around Philippians 1.6 is really helpful to address this question. How do you know God has begun a good work in you? How do you know God is at work? So let's look at verses 3 to 8 and see how Paul answers this question. Philippians 1.3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, to have this kind of confidence, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So do you see the two main evidences? One on either side of verse 6. You see them there? Partnership in the gospel, verse 5. He's thanking God, making every prayer with joy because of their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So the Philippians became Christians. They didn't become Christians by partnering with Paul. They became Christians and then they wanted to partner with Paul. This was the fruit of their faith, okay? Evidence of their faith. So they were praying for Paul. They're giving to Paul, supporting him. They're sending people to him like Epaphroditus that we read about in chapter two. And then secondly, down in verse seven, it's right for me to feel this way about you all because you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So partners in the gospel, partakers of grace. They weren't ashamed of Paul's chains. You see how that's fruit of genuine faith? Paul's in prison. They're not like, ooh, we didn't sign up for that. Like, if this is going to be, you know, hard, if there's going to be any suffering, we're out. No, they knew that Jesus was the suffering Savior. He was persecuted. His followers will be persecuted. They were with Paul, supportive of him. Whether he was in prison or out on mission, they were all in. So those two reasons are integrally related, right? Partaking in grace leads to partnership in the gospel. So if you've partaken of grace, if your values and your, your, your aspirations and ambitions have changed, like you want to see the gospel spread. You want to see people's lives changed. And you want in on some of that, whether it's time or money or talents, like you want to participate in what God is doing in this world. 
Paul actually refers to the Philippians. They were such an example of this that he refers to them when he's writing to the Corinthians. So in 2 Corinthians 8, he's trying to stir up the Corinthians to finish what they had already committed to do, to make a collection and give it to the poor saints in um, Judea. And so in 2 Corinthians 8.1, he writes this, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Macedonia is the area. Philippi is one of the cities in that area. Okay? So he's describing the Philippians and some others. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. (laughs) Those things don't usually go together unless there is grace at work. How does extreme poverty and severe test of affliction also go along with abundance of joy and an overflow in a wealth of generosity? Well, only if verse 9 is true in 2 Corinthians 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, the incarnation and death of Christ, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So if we know the grace of the Lord Jesus, if we know our poverty and his wealth and the poverty that he willingly chose to pour out the riches of his mercy on us, how can we not also then be generous and willing to share? And you know what? I know that many of our folks here they call Bethel home. Know the grace of the Lord Jesus. And see that in lots of ways. The way that there's just selfish, selfless, sacrificial service, but also just recently so encouraging. Um, Sarah's right there. So the Wheelings had a need, and you all gave so generously and abundantly that we had to say, okay, wait, wait. <laughs> that's enough. We need to hit pause here and, you know, we'll circle back to you. Like in the midst of a pandemic where there's lots of uncertainty and here there's this overflow of generosity, like praise God. He is at work among us. We know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and here's evidence of it. What a beautiful picture of the gospel fruit of the gospel at work among us. Or another example, if you know the humble service of the Savior, it will lead you to humbly serve others. Okay, that's the logic of Philippians 2. So have this mind that was also in Christ Jesus, that though he's in the form of God, he's equal with God, he didn't consider that, you know, something to be held on to, grasped and used to his own advantage, but he emptied himself and made himself nothing, even to the point of death on a cross, the ultimate humiliation and humble service. So have this mind in yourselves and do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So if we know the grace of our Lord Jesus, then it will work itself out in the way that we humbly serve others. Not perfectly, but genuinely. So we had a funeral service on Friday for longtime Bethel member Ann Lambert, 
So that's Sue Hughes' mother, Bill Hughes' mother-in-law. And Bill actually eulogized his mother-in-law, and he said, like her Savior, Anne made a difference by physically serving and caring for the least of these. Holidays and Sunday dinners included more than immediate family. She intentionally included people that didn't have family close by. She was especially kind to children and seniors. So this wasn't just because of her upbringing and good manners, although she had good manners. It was because she knew her servant Savior. And that got worked out in her life so we could with confidence at that funeral on Friday know that she was with her Savior face to face. So the work of God for us at work in us gets worked out through us and we are we end up conducting ourselves in a manner that displays the worth of the gospel which is Paul's command to them in 127 in Philippians so this this interplay God's work and ours let's zero in on that a little bit now okay and we're going to do side so by looking at verses 12 and 13 so point number three God's work and ours Philippians 2:12 Therefore my beloved as you have always obeyed so now not only as in my presence but much more in my absence work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure So you can imagine how hard it was for Paul to be absent from them. He was their spiritual father, and he's in prison. So he says, you, you need to keep going, not just in my presence, but also in my absence. And you can keep going. You can work out your salvation with fear and trembling because God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul's not with them, but God is. So he's writing to his brothers and sisters in Philippi. He's confident that God has begun a good work in them, and he tells them to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. So the series is The Perseverance of the Savior and The Perseverance of the Saints. The perseverance of the saints. It's not the cakewalk of the saints. It's not the lazy river ride of the saints. In this world, we will have trouble. It's not going to be easy. This life is like a refiner's fire to prepare us for heaven. We're never going to make heaven on earth here. And there's war within, right? We're prone to wander. We get selfish and prideful. We shrink back from loving people and serving and giving. We get tired and weary. Ever feel like quitting? <laughs> you don't have to raise your hand. You ever want to just escape from life? You ever feel like your spiritual knees are going to buckle? You ever feel like you're just, your arms are hanging limp and you're just overwhelmed? You just want to go take a nap and for a long time? Well, the Christian life is a marathon. It's a race of faith. Like Hebrews 12, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside the weights and sins and run with endurance the race that's set before us. 
looking to Jesus. So if you say that you're a runner and yet you're sitting on the curb in a lawn chair, you need to work your way out of that chair and get going. If you're going to finish the race, you have to keep running. So we need endurance, right? It doesn't mean that we don't need rest or that we shouldn't take our vacation days, but we rest that we may run until we really get to the rest all the way home. But if you scrap the race and you go eat pancakes at the diner by the roadside and then you go home, you show that you really didn't want to get to the finish line. Paul uses the same logic in chapter 3. Okay, look at verse 12. Philippians 3, 12. Again, is Paul a Christian? Absolutely. So that doesn't mean he doesn't need to keep running or work out his salvation. It means that that's exactly what he wants to do. Philippians 3.12, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, of course not, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Do you hear the logic there? (laughs) When Christ Jesus makes you his own, you want to run all the way until he's yours face to face. And you're not going to quit until you get there, even though you're going to feel like quitting many times along the way. So I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, not yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So that's the logic of grace. Press on to make it my own, not because I'm not sure and it's all up, up in the air until I do and it all depends on me. No. It's pressed on to make it my own because Jesus has made me his own. So that's Paul describing his own life. And he does so as an example to his spiritual children in Philippi and to us. He's not rebuking the Philippians here or in 2, 12, and 13. He knows they're real, right? I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. He knows that they're obeying King Jesus, as you have obeyed in my presence, now also in my absence, 2.12, he's encouraging them to keep going. We need that. In a sense, that's the point of this series is encouragement to endure. If you're running a 5K or a 10K or a half marathon or a marathon, whatever it is, pick one that would be hard for you in your mind and you get to the halfway point, and you start feeling sluggish. Isn't it helpful to have some friends on the sidewalk that are like cheering you on? It spurs you on. It's not oppressive. Like, jerks, what are you yelling at me for? <laughs> what pressure, all this pressure. No, they're trying to encourage you, right? It's just what you need. You want to finish the race. I mean, just to get it over with, right? So you can like have a drink and anyway. So you welcome all the encouragement you can get. That's what Paul's doing for the Philippians and for us. This is what this is for us, what it should be for us, and what we can do for one another as well. So any of you feeling sluggish spiritually, getting weary? (laughs) I, I imagine all the hands would go up if we just said, 
you know, during the time of COVID, anybody getting weary? Spiritually lazy, lethargic, distracted? Or how about just giving in to selfishness and your own interests and your own comfort? We need to hear this encouragement. Work out your salvation. Don't give up. Keep going. And we need to hear about the perseverance of the Savior. You can. You can keep going. Not because of your innate toughness. You don't have to pull yourself up by your running shoelaces, you know, bootstraps, whatever. Look at verse 13. For it is God who is at work. That's how we work out our salvation. God is underneath working and enabling us to work it out. God does not say, since I'm at work, you don't need to. Rather, precisely because I'm at work, you can obey this command to work out your salvation. So some Christians, have you heard this? Maybe you've said it yourself. Oh, the mystery of the Christian life, you know, God's sovereignty, human responsibility, who can figure it out? You know, besides, does it really make any difference anyway? I just need to work as if everything depended on me and pray as if everything depended on God. Ever say something like that? Ever hear anybody say something like that? Now, I'm not saying that there's no mystery (laughs) in God's sovereignty, human responsibility, that whole realm, okay? Huge, you know, lots of questions, lots of issues there. But that kind of thinking is not true or helpful. God's grace does not nullify effort and working and striving. It causes and enables and sustains it. It's not just work out and, you know, God's at work too. Not sure how those two meet, but, you know, they're both happening. So you pull your weight and God will pull his. No, there's a little word in between, F-O-R. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling for, because God is at work enabling you to work out. Because he does the work, you can obey the command. Because he is at work, you will obey the command. So just briefly here, in case fear and trembling throws any of you off, there's a couple of texts that might be helpful, echoes in the Old Testament, um, what Paul might be thinking when he's saying this. So Psalm 2 is one of them. It's a psalm about the king, ultimately about Jesus. Psalm 2.11 says, Worship the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. You wouldn't think those two things would go together, would you? And yet they do in Philippians. Rejoicing is all through the book of Philippians and working out your salvation with fear and trembling. And in Psalm 2.12, the next verse, blessed are all who take refuge in him. The other passage is Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. You know, God doesn't need a temple. He doesn't, you know, dwell in temples made by hands. He said, this is the one to whom I will look he who is humble and contrite and trembles at my word. What does it mean that he looks to the humble, contrite, trembling one? He looks to him with grace and favor and love. 
to support and strengthen that one. So this is the opposite of flippancy and indifference. Okay, this is reverence for God. This is trembling because we know our own hearts, how needy and weak and prone to wander we are. And we want to just cling to God with desperate dependence. And then notice how, how God is at work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What does that mean? This is actually pretty awesome. It means he works at the level of our willing, our desires, our determination, as well as at the level of execution and actually following through. (laughs) How specific, isn't that encouraging? That God can help us with our desires Because sometimes we can just kind of grit our teeth and do it. But man, our heart's cold and we're just flat. Aren't you glad that God can like kindle fire when we feel cold? Can melt the iceberg and warm our hearts? And sometimes we have desire, but the follow-through isn't there, right? Isn't it great that God is also at work in our Working, working out, following through with those desires. That's so encouraging. So we can pray, oh, Lord, help me. Increase my love. I'm so cold toward people. Like I just want to, I don't want to deal with people anymore. Change my heart. Working out your salvation with fear and trembling. And you can work it out because God is at work and he can be at work at the heart level and at the execution follow-through level. But one more thing to notice here. God is at work in you. God is at work. (laughs) If you're a Christian, God is at work in you. You know who we're talking about here, right? Like God is the most powerful effective, productive, indefatigable, efficient worker in the universe. He is omniscient. Well, he's that. But he's omnipotent. He's not a procrastinator. He always finishes what he starts. Isn't that encouraging? He's at work in us. We're not on our own with this. So whether it's love for God and neighbor, he can help us with that. Whether it's hungering and thirsting for righteousness rather than for something else, he can help with that. Longing for the pure milk of the word, he can create that. Fear of the Lord, gratitude, gladness, joy, he can do that. We can work out. We can grow. We can chase. We can endure because God is at work. So Paul doesn't say work out and God is at work. You do your part. God will do his. Paul doesn't say don't worry about it. Let go and let God. God's at work. So you don't have to. We need to hear both. He who began a good work, he's going to complete that. He is at work in you. And we need to hear, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Keep going. Don't give up. 
And sometimes we need to hear one more than the other. So, not sure where you are. The Lord knows. The Spirit of God knows. Which one do you, want, do you need to hear more? Maybe you need, you know, shot in the arm today and you need to get back in the race. Maybe you've just been, you know, a, a bundle of nerves and you need to hear and just be re-oxygenated by the fact that God is in control and He is at work and He's with you and for you. So God's work enables us to work out. Our Savior's perseverance enables our perseverance. I quoted it last week, but I want to repeat it again. Again, Dane Ortland from Gentle and Lowly. We are talking about something deeper than the doctrine of eternal security or once saved, always saved. A glorious doctrine, a true doctrine, sometimes called the perseverance of the saints. We have come more deeply to the doctrine of the perseverance of the heart of Christ. So yes, got to work out our salvation. But guess what, folks? We don't do the heavy lifting. (laughs) Jesus does the heavy lifting. God is the great worker. Isaiah 64, 4, I love it. For from of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you who works for those who wait for him. Or Acts 17, 24 and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives he does the heavy lifting. Jesus' yoke is easy. His burden is light. Sometimes we don't feel that way. <laughs> but we need to be reminded of that. And we need to pray, Lord, oh, help me realize that it really is. When I run to other functional saviors, that's actually a way heavier burden and it ends up in a train wreck. So is medicine, like the kind that you know actually works, burdensome when you're sick or have a headache or a body ache? Is a life preserver burdensome to a person struggling to stay afloat after their boat capsizes? Is the oxygen tank, I mean, those things are heavy, right? Is the oxygen tank burdensome for a scuba diver? Is lifting good food from your plate to your mouth when you're hungry, is that burdensome? Like, ah, I have to do it again. Is taking a shower burdensome when you are dirty and smelly and you want to get cleaned up? Is it burdensome for the branch to abide in the vine? Is it burdensome for the sheep to stick with the good shepherd? God does the heavy lifting. One more passage. I, I'm actually, I'm going to share a few more. But this passage, like, you know, we talk about the new covenant. 1 Corinthians 11, you know, the cup of the new covenant whenever we participate in communion. That phrase comes from Jeremiah 31. And there's all these promises about the new covenant that's coming. And they're sweet. So, Jeremiah 31, predictions and promises of the new covenant. 
Listen to these words in Jeremiah 32, 37 to 41. This, this is the heavy lifting, folks. This is God for you. This is God at work in you. Behold, I will gather them and I will make them dwell in safety and they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. He who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts. He's at work at the level of our willing. I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. Do you think about that often? God does what he does. He does his work in us with all of his heart. He doesn't just barely put up with you. He does this keeping, persevering work with all of his heart and soul. So I've got good news today. Christians, God finishes what he starts. So we end where we began. Back in verse 6, God finishes what he starts. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He will finish the work. Do you realize, if you are a Christian, the work is as good as done It's done. Jesus said it's finished. And you, brother or sister in Christ, are as good as glorified. That's what Paul says in Romans 8. He puts it in the past tense. A future event he puts in the past tense because it's so certain it's like it's already done. Romans 8, 29 and 30, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined, he also called and those whom he called, he also justified and those whom he justified, he also glorified and nobody falls through the cracks. So as we work out we need to remember that God is at work and be reminded by these promises and these truths. So let me close with this, this thing that I found um, a while back. I think it's a fitting illustration to close with. We'll pray and then we'll sing our closing song. It's written by a lady named Madeline Canada. She writes, Our backyard is full of trees that seem to burst with life and greenery in the summertime. It's a display of breathtaking ordinary beauty, and it's dying now. The yard that was once brimming with life and beauty and warmth has become dreary and cold, lost. Yet we don't mourn the loss or question whether or not spring will bring back the vibrancy we once knew so well. We understand that this time of year is an integral part of our seasonal system. Therefore, we have hope of spring and can enjoy goodness and grace in this dark and cold season, knowing the warmth and light is coming back. It has always come. Why would we doubt it now? Do you believe spring is more certain 
than the promises of the God who sends it? I believe many of us unconsciously do. Lately, my feeble senses have tempted me to believe that God has forgotten to keep his promises. Why does it seem as though what was once full of life and beauty is now dying? How can it be true that one day he will wipe away every tear when there are so many still falling? How can it be that he is working all things for good when the wound aches so? Ah, those feeble senses, what sly and deadly little things they are. They are the lifeblood of my own understanding, creeping up and choking out the trust in my Lord's promises I once knew so well. If you and I knew not the nature of the seasons, we would believe the world was ending when autumn arrived. The trees in our yards are barren. The creatures that once roamed are now fleeing. Darkness is growing longer. Warmth is replaced by a bitter cold. Based off of what we see, smell, hear, and feel, this must be the end of all things, right? The days are growing shorter and thoughts of Christmas are beginning to blossom. Instead, I sit here in complete rest and assurance that spring will come again. This seemingly dying season is not the end of all things. And because I am certain of this, due to my trust in spring's impending arrival, I am able to simply live here in it without fear or restlessness. In fact, I can even find joy as I wait calmly steadfastly and assuredly resting in the promise of spring. Oh, my soul, why are you so much more trusting in the seasons than you are in the God who lovingly and sovereignly ordains them? We know the truth, even when our senses, our own understanding, seem to contradict it. Spring always comes. Life isn't gone. The creatures return. Warmth melts the cold. And you know what? Our loving Father is the one who brings these very things. Do you believe that the God who set in motion the cycle of the seasons would allow his creation to be more faithful and sure than he himself? No, indeed not. Promise after promise made and kept, he has not failed. He will not fail. One of the promises we have is that he is with us always, even here in this time of longing and groaning for restoration and new creation even here in our confusion and questions. He won't leave us, even when we feel uncertain. He will hold us fast. So we're going to sing that here in just a moment. Oh, Father, we thank you that you finish what you start, that you who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. And we all need the encouragement of that promise. But maybe in particular those who are struggling through the equivalent of a spiritual winter. I pray that you would help them hear the birds sing. That spring is coming. And you are at work even in the dead of winter to bring about life and fruit and joy. We thank you that you have us, that you've laid hold of us. Help us to keep pressing on to lay hold of you one day face to face. We can't wait. In your name we pray.
Amen.